I'm Josh Porter, and this is the Van City Church Podcast. The following teaching is part six in our series, An Alternative Society. Who is fit to lead the church, and how do we find them? Who leads our church, and why? When I was uh, 11 years old, I'm pretty sure, circa 11 years old, my friend Paul and I rode our bikes to the local movie rental shop, which is Michael's video, if you're curious, and we each put up 50 cents to rent a VHS copy of what we had both been told was the scariest movie ever made, The Exorcist. And uh, we watched it in his living room in broad daylight, <laughs> and we were terrified. Uh, but I wasn't just scared. The movie, as a, you know, a piece of, of filmmaking, made a profound impact on me, and still does to this day. The Exorcist isn't just the greatest horror film of all time. It's one of the greatest films of all time in any genre, objectively. <laughs> yeah, it's based on William Peter Blatty's 1972 novel of the same name. The, William Friedkin, the director, his film adaptation of The Exorcist became a cultural and box office phenomenon two years after the publication of the novel. It grossed the 1973 equivalent of Avengers Endgame. Yeah, terrifying audiences so profoundly, this is a true story, that after seeing the movie in its original theatrical run, my dad refused to speak of it again until his dying day. He would leave a room if it came up. Now, most people who haven't uh, who have or haven't seen The Exorcist really think of it as a movie about a 12-year-old girl, Reagan McNeil, who um, is oppressed by spiritual evil. And it is, but really, the movie belongs to the character Damien Karras. Father Karras uh, was a boxer who became a priest, but after the Jesuits sent him to Harvard to become a psychologist for them, years of science and medicine and time with the severely mentally ill have eroded Father Karras's belief. And in one scene early in the film, sitting in a Georgetown bar one night, he confides to another priest that he wants out of his role. Uh, I'm unfit, he tells his friend. And the other priest reasons with him, pleads with him. He says, you are the best that we've got, to which Father Karras responds with a question, am I really? Before he offers the terrible confession, I think I've lost my faith. The actor who played Damien Karras was Jason Miller, who, get this, prior to The Exorcist, wasn't an actor at all. He was a playwright, and he was cast because he resonated with the character, and he told director William Friedkin, I am this guy. His story is my story. He was a lapsed Catholic, he was a doubtful Jesuit, and he was the man who lost his faith. I'm unfit. Damien Karras has to confront spiritual evil in order to resolve his terrible crisis and to decide what he does and doesn't believe about God. Such is the journey of people of faith, and such is the journey of pastors and priests. I'm unfit. Father Karras, in this scene and across the exorcist's two-hour runtime, really speaks for every man and woman who has ever set out to lead the church or to pastor other people, all of God's holy, bumbling kingdom of priests, when he says, I'm unfit. All of us have wandered and worried and feared or became convinced that this is true of us in any given season of our leadership, which begs the question, what makes a man or a woman fit to lead the people of God, to lead the church? 
We are in the midst of our annual vision series, a time for us to circle up as a church every single year as a family and remind ourselves and one another why we're here, what we're doing, and where we're headed in the year to come, God willing. For weeks now, like Cam said, we've been talking about what it means to be the church in the first place, which is not a subculture, but not something to do on a Sunday evening, not just a static set of beliefs. It is an alternative society, meaning it is an entirely different way to be a human being. Every week at this particular church, Someone, usually several people, will stand up here and, like I said a few minutes ago, will say something like, I'm so-and-so, I help lead this church, or I'm one of the leaders around here. I'm a pastor, they might say, or I'm a deacon, or I'm the director of, you fill in the blank. So what does it mean to be the alternative society of Jesus and to have leaders who are our leaders and why. Now, if you're new or visiting, a bit of a disclaimer about this evening. Ordinarily, this, this particular stretch of the gathering is about studying the scriptures and the way of Jesus, which we'll do in a minute, learning the things of God and what it means to live accordingly. Tonight, uh, we'll be kind of heavy on inside baseball and housekeeping stuff, but bear with me. I do think that God might like to talk to us a bit about what it means to be the church, to have leaders, and how we together can love and be led by imperfect people. Because the New Testament, as we say often, teaches, it actually presupposes that one can only follow Jesus in the context of the church. And the church is and has been the consistent, faithful gathering together of men and women of all ages and ethnicities and stories and backgrounds, people brand new to Jesus, longtime Christians, best friends to strangers to worship, take communion, give time and finances and study the scriptures together, learn the teachings of Jesus put them into practice. All of this with the vulnerability and accountability of other disciples of Jesus, like Jess and Tyson were just talking about, with whom we share our lives and our discipleship. Your life opened to the support and the correction of other disciples of Jesus. So who oversees all this? Is anyone in charge, as it were, or can anyone lead the church? Must the church have leaders? Now, earlier, Jess read from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. If you're not there, go ahead and turn there now. We're going to poke around in this passage a little bit before we're done. Let's read, beginning with verse 12, once again. Oh, Jess didn't read that at all. My apologies. Cam did. Cam did. She was talking, though. So, yeah, her, her, what she had to say really stuck with me and what Cam said, or his delivery, rather. <laughs> I really put my, I'm digging the hole deeper. Sorry. Sorry. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, let's read again, beginning with verse 12. Now we ask you, brothers and sisters, this is the church, to acknowledge those who work hard among you, who care for you in the Lord, and who admonish you. Hold them in the highest regard, in love, because of their work. Live in peace with each other. Now in context, the letter's author, a guy named Paul, is talking about people who lead the church, church leaders. And that phrase, those who work hard among you in the Lord, can be translated those who are over you in the Lord, or those who take charge, who exercise leadership and spiritual authority over you in the Lord. Paul is talking about a symbiotic relationship between the family of the church and the people who lead it. The New Testament talks often and at length about church leadership, even naming official offices or positions of the church leadership team, two in particular. Elders, who are also called overseers in the New Testament, and then there's deacons. Look at this. 
Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for them in each church with prayer and fasting, committed them to the Lord in whom they had put their trust. Or another from Philippians, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with who? The overseers and deacons. Here's another from 1 Timothy. Here's a trustworthy saying, whoever aspires to be an overseer desires a noble task. In the same way, deacons are to be worthy of respect. Or from Titus, the reason I left you in Crete was that you might put in order what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Or again, in Titus, an overseer manages God's household. So in the first century, Paul traveled the ancient world planting churches, which weren't like organic friend groups that took hikes and talked about spiritual things, but churches. Honestly, the way that we typically think about churches now, sure, some things have changed in the last 2,000 years, but the basic structure and the things that we do week to week have been done by disciples of Jesus across many, many centuries. And with every church, Paul appointed or commissioned or ordained, whatever language you like, elders, also called overseers, and deacons, meaning leaders, official leaders of the church. Not, uh, you know, everyone kind of just shares leadership and not, well, everyone's a leader in their own heart, but anointed, sanctioned leaders with specific spiritual responsibility for each church and the people in it. Well, what does that mean exactly? And, and, and where the heck are the pastors? Hmm? Aren't they supposed to be in charge? We'll get to them in a second. Now, first notice here in 1 Thessalonians that the church leaders in question have three jobs, if you're taking notes. First, to work hard, meaning to labor and to serve other people, to serve the church. So there you go. Here's one easy way of identifying a church leader or even the eligibility of a church leader. They work hard among the family of God, meaning they are present, they are participatory, and they are self-sacrificially giving of themselves, their time, their energy, their resources to better serve the church. Now, for this reason, we adopted a philosophy very early on before we even had a Sunday gathering that when we at Van City looked to put people in positions of leadership, the, the prerequisite would be to find the person already doing it. The people already stepping into the roles that we need to fill without a title or a paycheck or a pat on the back, not just the person with the best experience, which is great and valuable, but, but not that, or the degree or the amazing gift set, or even the person who wants to do it if someone incentivizes them, but the person already doing it, already here working hard and working hard among you so they're actually present in the church. They're known by the people and they are knowing the people in turn. Now, obviously, no one in this room can know more than 100 people with any meaningful intimacy. The same was true of Paul and Peter and Timothy and all the first century church leaders. The early church was made up of teeny tiny little communities like the one that Paul mentions in Romans that met in the homes of Priscilla and Aquila. And it was made up of ginormous communities like the one that gets mentioned in Acts chapter 2 that was literally growing by the day. Both churches had official leaders, whether it was big or small or somewhere in between. And in either event, there's no way for those leaders to maintain like intimate relationships with every single person in the community. So don't get it confused. The idea isn't that the leader is your best friend or the leader comes to your house every night or the leader talks, takes all your calls, but that the leader is present and participatory in and amongst the community of the church. They work hard among you, and that's why they are known by the church. Second, that they care for you in the Lord. 
Now that can be translated, they oversee or they watch over or they protect you or they guard over you. And the phrase does imply authority. Ooh, I know. But it's not big boss CEO authority. It's more like a paternal authority to guard and protect a family and to lead them with loving, self-sacrificial guidance. And then third, admonish them. This is a word that we don't really use conversationally anymore, but it can be translated correct them. They correct the church. The leaders correct theological, moral, and social error among the people of the church in order to safeguard its health and its longevity and its faithfulness to the way of Jesus handed down generation to generation. Meaning they take that often awkward, painful, and unpleasant responsibility for calling people out on their sin and failure, including other church leaders, with grace and kindness, of course, but with the intention to correct and to call the church into repentance and thus forward in faithful discipleship to Jesus. So that could be like the guy or the girl standing up here on a Sunday evening, or it could be the one who sits down to have coffee and pray with you on a Monday morning. But notice the relationship between the church and its leaders is, as I said, not a one-way ticket. It's symbiotic and it's reciprocal. The people of the church have responsibilities to their leaders, just as the leaders are responsible for their church. Look again, 1 Thessalonians verse, uh, 5, verse 12. We ask you, brothers and sisters, to acknowledge those who work hard among you, who care for you in the Lord, and who admonish you. Hold them in the highest regard in love because of their work. Live in peace with each other. So, first responsibility of the church to the leaders is to acknowledge them. Literally, it means to see but it can be translated to appreciate, you know, like uh, Avatar, I see you. No? Avatar? Yeah, yeah, I see you. Anyway, the idea is that you recognize, not just that, you vis- you know, that they're visible, but that you recognize that they lead the church and that you value the work that they do for both you and the family of God. And then second, you hold them in the highest regard. I realize this sounds funny coming from me, but the way I'm getting around is I'm just thinking of all the other leaders <laughs> that I know and love and not myself. But anyway, you hold them in the highest regard. That can be translated, honestly, honor them. Now, that does not mean that you exalt your leader or that you offer blind obedience to them in all things, obviously that would be a mistake. It means that when you are a member of the church family, you recognize the positions of your leaders and that you follow them and you listen and you come under their authority, you pray for them and you hold them in high regard for the responsibility they have been given by God. And finally, most importantly, love them. Don't badmouth them. Don't pick them apart. Don't nitpick them to death with your community. Don't slander them. Love them. So the leader works hard among the people, cares for them, corrects them, and the church acknowledges their leadership, honors them, and loves them. There you go. Now, it's hard to capture in words exactly how provocative or how subversive this paradigm is for the modern American listener. We are a country founded on anti-authoritarianism. And the modern Western ethos sort of screams for at least the illusion of complete autonomy without judgment or correction of any kind, always, of course, replete with just breathtaking hypocrisy. So (laughs) at one time, you know, uh, the idea of tolerance, which is a word that likes to float around in social circles, it was defined by sort of the societal willingness to accept and acknowledge the existence of differing viewpoints and ideologies, 
and maintain basic decency with civil dialogue and debate and to remember other people are human beings as well. So tolerance was, listen, I disagree with either what you believe or, or what you say or even how you live, but I will still treat you with dignity and respect as a human being. And then something kind of evolved or devolved over time, and the rule became it's not enough to acknowledge my worldview and to treat me with dignity and respect. You must approve of my ideology and my action. And then it sort of mutated again, and now the demanded standard, at least it can kind of feel like it in the social media vitriol, is it's not enough to be civil and accept different perspectives that they exist. It's not even enough to approve of ideology and lifestyle. You must celebrate all of it or be banished from society. And the breathtaking hypocrisy of it all is that in the end, it boils down to approve of and celebrate my ideology, even if it compromises your ideology. And if you do not, we will destroy you. And the prevailing comrade code is sort of no one can tell me how to live. Now you, live how I say, or die. And this is called tolerance. My point is that we actually want authority. It's just that we want to be the ones doling it out over ourselves, over culture, over church, even if it's not our religion or our church at all, over politicians, over entertainment, over celebrity. Don't tell us what to do. We will tell you what to do. Thank you very much. And it's a ridiculous tug of war governed not by logic, obviously, or common sense, but by the self and by ever-evolving cultural fragility. And it's not just, it sounds kind of like I'm creating a caricature, I guess I sort of am, but it's not just the progressive like social media moral police. Look at the so-called Christians. Just about everyone, Christian or otherwise, is aware of power being abused by purported Christian leaders. And like the big, huge stuff, like embezzlement and fraud, the smaller scale stuff, like just the domineering personality, serious long-term damage by spiritual abuse, horrific outfall from, um, fallout from sex scandals. In my own immediate circle, I have connections to churches and pastors who have been abused and hurt, uh, people who have stolen church funds or run off with mistresses or secret boyfriends or drugs or whatever. And these are real Huge issues that should be acknowledged and addressed. But in the interest of balance, I do have to say that I'd also like to point out that no one is going to make a Netflix documentary about a quiet small town pastor who leads a little church faithfully for several decades and then dies quietly. Uh, one makes headlines and seems like the norm. The other does not. And it seems like the exception. I would argue it's probably the other way around. So the idea of coming under the religious authority of a church leader because of the headlines, because of the well-known scandal in the documentaries at a time and a place like this, it's not the easiest sell, trust me. But the New Testament, as usual, just doesn't care about any of that, you know? And it's not, listen, it's really not because ideas like moral failure and corruption in the church or, or even the idea of anti-authoritarianism were just unknown in the first century. They had no idea that things would get this way. Paul didn't know about any of that stuff in the early church. Believe me, they were both present and accounted for, and Paul doesn't care. He just says it anyway. As a leader of the church, he says it. Work hard, care for the people, correct them. You guys acknowledge, honor, and love your leaders. The church has leaders. The leaders have roles, and those under their leadership, in turn, have symbiotic and reciprocal roles as well. Are you guys okay? Still with me so far? Thank you. Thank you for bearing with me on this. It's a really awkward one to do. Now, 
Notice that the New Testament paradigm is for overseers and deacons. That's what you read about all throughout the letters in the New Testament. Where the heck are the pastors? In the scriptures, pastor is uh, not a title, but a verb. Now, there's nothing particularly wrong about using pastor colloquially as a title. We do it. It's not, uh, it's not actually a New Testament office of church leadership. That's just overseers and deacons. Again, overseers are often called elders. But since the term elder, I don't know if you guys have noticed, has another more obvious meaning in English. And because elders are not always elders in that sense, we have decided to prefer the term overseer at Man City, which the New Testament also uses. And it's a little more self-explanatory, if you are wondering. That's an aside. So the way we put it at Man City is that we have overseers and deacons, and we also have those who pastor certain needs of the church, which you could translate as shepherd or lead or guide certain needs of the church. I pastor the teaching and the creative vision. Cam pastors communities and people. Patrick pastors operations. But isn't it interesting that Paul writes to all God's holy people together with the overseers and deacons and not to the senior pastor of the church in Philippi? In fact, From the earliest stages of the church of Jesus, leadership has been carried out by teams rather than individuals. There's actually a story in Acts 6. We don't have time to unpack the whole thing tonight. You can read it on your own time. It's fascinating stuff in which the early church kind of comes to the leadership team, which at this point is the 12 apostles. It's probably as good as you're going to get. And not just to Peter, you know, and not just to one or the other disciples of Jesus, but they come to all 12. The team of 12 pre or proposes a solution to the church's problem, meaning they all collaborate and work together to resolve conflict. The paradigm that we're given from the New Testament is of a church that knows its leaders because those leaders are there. They're participating in the life of the church, and the leaders are a team. The team begins with overseers. An overseer is someone who provides pastoral care and equips members of the church for ministry, for following Jesus. They oversee the ministries of the church, meaning everything that the church does, its responsibilities, its unique call in its city, its time, its place. And they guide and guard the church by guarding and teaching doctrine. Now, in the New Testament, uh, guarding doctrine is one of the core responsibilities of an overseer. It sounds terribly abstract, But that doesn't mean that they need uh, Bible degrees to qualify to be an overseer. It just means that they are committed to the teaching and maintaining of orthodoxy and to correct false teaching and sin in the church to safeguard our collective discipleship to Jesus, which makes sense. If you've got a community, for example, as the early church was and as the current church is, built on the truth of Jesus' resurrection from the dead, and then someone comes around whispering, listen, he didn't really come back from the dead. Someone has to stand up and say, what's what? Someone has to say, listen, we believe this is the truth, and we believe that's a lie. But to be qualified to do any of this in the first place, the potential overseer has to meet certain particular criteria of spiritual maturity established by Paul in 1 Timothy and a couple of other places in the New Testament. To qualify... The potential overseer has to be above reproach. If they have a spouse, spouse, they have to be faithful to their spouse. They have to be temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not given to drunkenness, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. They have to manage their family well. They must have time and experience as Christians, and they must have a good reputation among the people. If they meet all those requirements, they might make a good overseer. Then there are deacons. 
The deacons work under the overseers, collaborating with them to carry out leadership for specific needs or specific expressions or departments of the church. So Katie is the deacon over hospitality at Van City Church. Taylor is the deacon over Van City Kids. Uh, Kiana is the deacon over Van City Women. Alexi is the deacon of Van City Youth. And like the overseers, they have to meet certain character qualifications for the role. They have to be worthy of respect, sincere, not indulging in much wine, not pursuing dishonest gain, not malicious talkers, temperate, trustworthy, and hold to the truth of faith with a clear conscience. They must first be tested, and if there is nothing against them, they may serve as deacons. Wow, high bar for both overseers and deacons. And we have both at our church. Can you imagine such a thing? And our church, uh, with its overseers and deacons, are they all of those things? Do we really deserve acknowledgement and honor and love? And do we really meet all the criteria that it takes to become an overseer or a deacon? Now, I've been a pastor for almost a decade now, and I can tell you a few things about leading a church with other leaders. I have yet to meet a single person, man or woman, who always meets every character requirement on those incredible lists. I don't believe Paul expects consistent perfection from church leaders. I believe that he expects a basic standard of moral and character qualification and the willingness to grow and to repent when and if we fail. Now, leading a church is a weird thing, depending on the model of church in which you were raised or where you've come from just before this. You might unknowingly project certain expectations onto any given leader, whether they're deacons, overseers, pastors, me, someone else here. It, it doesn't matter, really. It happens subconsciously, and we do it all the time. And then we hold those leaders accountable to those unspoken expectations without them knowing it. And then we reserve the right to get bent out of shape when they disappoint us. And I know this because it's already happened to most leaders at Van City and every church I have ever known at least some million times, and that's a low estimate. Some people, for example, expect the kind of like down-home neighborhood church pastor who shakes your hand at the door when you leave and invites you over for a casserole after the gathering. That's the kind of pastor that I grew up with. Others expect like a hyper-charismatic megachurch influencer pastor that leads the church into some kind of relevance and credibility. And when whatever they're expecting doesn't happen, well, maybe they get upset about that. And if I can be honest uh, with you guys, being in such a position can often feel objectifying because it tends to frame the leader in question as a figure rather than as a brother and a sister. No leader is perfect. You guys obviously know that very well, and few leaders will be exactly what you want them to be, for better or for worse. So their responsibility is to work hard, to care for you, to correct, to acknowledge, and then to be acknowledged, to be honored, and to be loved by the church. The church does have leaders, and tonight... We're actually going to have those leaders join me on stage, and we're going to pray for them as they commit to serving our church for another year. Um, our fiscal year begins in October. It's a whole thing, but that's why we have our vision series in October and our budget resets in October, and we sort of look out over the landscape of the months ahead as if it's our new year in the fall. Um, so to begin, I'm going to go ahead and ask our current overseers and our deacons to go ahead and make their way to the stage It is the, uh, the policy of our church to invite 
both our deacons and our overseers to a covenant agreement of leadership for a fiscal year of the church, so for 12 months, October to October, and then both parties kind of reassess at the end of each year, how's it going, are you prepared to lead again, there's no like contract in blood that says you have to for the rest of your life, nothing like that. The contract in blood is very negotiable. (laughs) Um, So as we end an old year and begin a new year of our church. Some things are changing. Some things aren't. We're going to begin with our deacons. We have, uh, oh my gosh, they're all right. <laughs> I, don't know how to, I don't know how to get out of everybody's way. I'm going to go over here. You guys have seen enough of me all, already. So um, we have uh, Lexi, who's our deacon of youth. That's right. Yeah. Katie, who's our deacon of hospitality. <laughs> wow. It's like I'm introducing the band on guitar. <laughs> Kiana's our deacon of women, and Taylor is our deacon of kids. Wow, that, yeah, this is very, it is very important, yes. And believe it or not, for the last seven years, give or take, these have been the overseers of your church, Scott Barguer, who together with me, before, long before we had a Sunday gathering, was asked by the church that planted us, uh, y'all are the overseers, go. And we're like, what's that? Um, and yep, so it's been a wild ride. Uh, Cam... Patrick and Tab have also been our overseers. Um, The overseers believe in every one of these deacons together as a group. Every one of them, we believe, meets those character requirements laid out by Paul in the New Testament. Every one of them was already here, already serving, already participating in and giving to the church before anyone tapped them and said, hey, would you be interested in becoming a deacon? All of them have decided to serve Van City for another year as deacons, right? Yes? Yes, great, okay. (laughs) Um, And we want you guys to know as our deacons that we love you, and we want you as our church to understand that we believe in these leaders, that they are here to work hard among you, to care for you, and to serve our church. And we are asking you to acknowledge their leadership, to honor them, and to love them. So deacons, will you seek to serve the church within your office of leadership in the year ahead of And church, will you honor and love your deacons? Thank you. Now I'm going to ask our current overseers to lay hands on our deacons, and then uh, Tab is going to pray as a gesture of our ordination of this team. Can we extend a hand? Let's pray. Father God, we are thankful. Thankful for your faithfulness to Van City, to us, Uh, for these leaders, for these deacons, for these wonderful women of God who have um, set aside their time, their energy, their attentions, Lord, to love on your church, to love on your bride, to love on us, Lord, and we just thank you for them. And God, we uh, are thankful that they are here and they've been doing what they've been doing and, and they commit to do it even into this new year. And God, we commission them as deacons, Lord, and we just ask for your protection over them. God, that you would uh, be their front and rear guard as they uh, love on your church in their specific fields. Lord, that you would guard and protect Lexi, that you would guard and protect Katie, that you would guard and protect Kiana and Taylor, Lord, that you'd be around them and surround them and be in them, uh, protect their families, Lord God. And we just thank you. God, we pray for wisdom moving forward. God, as they approach this new year, God, give them fresh insight, Lord. Give them fresh vision for their specific ministries. 
And Lord, I pray that you would surround them with people that would love them. Lord, love them the best way that they can, where they can be encouraged, where they can be challenged, Lord. God, that you would just, just surround them with people that care. And God, we are thankful. We want to thank you and worship you for them. So Lord, be with them as they move forward in this new year. We love you. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, deacons. You guys are off the hook. You can sit down. Um, now I'm going to ask Levi, if you wouldn't mind coming up and joining the rest of the staff on stage. Uh, these are the people who uh, work as our staff at Van City Church. You guys know um, Cameron well. He's the pastor of communities and people. It's his job to care for Van City communities, to meet um, with and pastor and spend time with both new people and longtime members of our family. Uh, Patrick is our pastor of operations, which means that he plans and he works to keep the budget on track and cares for facilities and manages relationships with Vineyard and makes arrangements, basically everything behind the scenes necessary to keep our church going every week. Levi is our director of worship, as you well know. He leads our band and his volunteers. He schedules them. He plans and arranges and writes music, and he steers the overall direction of the way we worship with music in particular at Van City Church. Um, the staff does not serve year to year. We are here indefinitely, uh, assuming that that budget changes and, and giving takes off. But we are a part of a greater team that leads the church. So staff, will you seek to serve the church in the months ahead within your role in gifting and calling and as your vocation and your job? And church, will you honor and love your staff? Thank you. Tab, will you pray over our staff? Absolutely. Can we extend a hand again and agree together? Father, we love you. And just like with the ladies before the guy, we're thankful for the staff. We're thankful, Lord, that you have blessed us with each and every one of them who give. And when they have nothing else, they give. Lord, I just pray again for your protection over them. God, that you would bless them, bless their families. Lord, bless all that they do. Uh, God, protect them. God, I pray that they'd be like a tree. They'd plant their lives like a tree near the water, knowing that you are their source and their supply. God, they're not king. They're not Lord. You are. And God, may that truth be the strength, the foundation that they plant their ministry on, that they plant their lives on. God, that you would bless and keep them. God, that you would be their hiding place that you would be their strong tower and you would be their refuge. Lord, I'm so grateful, and I pray that you would give them everything that they need for this year ahead. Lord, every mountain, that they wouldn't see a mountain, that they would see their king. Every valley, that they would see their king. Every battle ahead of them, they would see their king. And we just thank you for them. Bless them. Bless them today. Bless them tomorrow. Bless them for the years ahead, years and years ahead, that, that indefinite that Josh talked about, that you would bless them for all of that. We love you, and we thank you for them in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, guys. Levi, now you're off the hook, at least for now. Finally, um, last but not least, thank you, guys, for participating in this uh, with us. I want to ask this year's round of overseers and training to join me on stage. Um, the highest office of church authority is the office of overseer, which I don't say as a brag. Again, this is not a CEO kind of shot-calling dictator position. These are the people who take spiritual responsibility for this community, and they guard its doctrine, they protect the truth, they love and care for its people. 
Um, and this year, we're making some changes. For the lifetime of Van City Church to date, the current overseers, as you've seen up here, have held the same office as a gift and as a responsibility and often out of necessity. But because, as you can see, most of our staff have also been overseers, it creates this kind of like flattened leadership in which we sort of lead and report to ourselves. Um, so while I was away on sabbatical this summer, I felt as if this is something that God brought up with me, which I was disappointed. I was like, really? Infrastructure? That's what we're going to talk about? Born <laughs> Whatever. But it's something that I've been thinking about and praying about and processing for a long time now. And our entire team has been working through this in conversation and prayer for many months now. Um, and for a year, um, Tiffany Erickson and Jan have uh, been with our overseers in all our meetings, and they've been making their way through our long list of like required listening and reading, and they've been reporting to an individual overseer every month to check in on that process. Um, this year, Eric Tabanowski is uh, taking a much-deserved break from his role as overseer, and both Patrick and Cameron are going to be freed up to function as just staff and pastors under the covering of our overseers, so they'll no longer um, report to themselves. Um, Scott Barger is going to, he can't get out of this thing, <laughs> he is going to continue to serve for another year. Um, and I'm going to spend the year as a consultant to the team of overseers, but I will not have a vote in official decisions, so I can't kind of steer my own destiny, but I'll be there speaking for our staff as sort of the lead supervisor of our team. And tonight, Tiffany and Jan will be ordained as our first new overseers in many years. So... New overseers, will you seek the good of the church by serving it in the year ahead? Yes. And church, will you honor and love your overseers? Yes. Tab, once again, as your final responsibility as an overseer, will you pray and ordain our new overseers? Absolutely. Thank you, ladies, for being here. We appreciate all your work this year. Let's pray. Can we extend a hand? Father, you are good, and all you do is good. We thank you for Jan. We thank you for Tiffany and, uh, God, the sacrifice that they've, uh, they've done this past year of pursuing you. Lord, not really knowing what was ahead, just the desire to pursue you. Um, they sacrificed time. They sacrificed uh, energy, all of it, God, and I just want to thank you for them. Thank you that they're saying yes to overseeing and protection over the church doctrine, over ministering to the church, the people, all of it, God. All the things that Josh shared, the providing pastoral care, overseeing and, and guiding and guarding. Lord, I pray that you would give them wisdom and insight moving forward. God, that you would be their source. God, that your presence would be paramount for them. God, that you would just continue to speak to them in the quiet place. God, that you would quiet the noise, that you would quiet the distractions. Lord, that you would silence the enemy as they pursue to lead and oversee this church, your people. And God, we thank you for them. We pray your blessing over them. We pray strength and wisdom and Lord, we thank you. God, we commission them and ordain them overseers of Van City Church. And we are thankful to follow them as they lead. And Lord, teach them to follow you. God, we give you praise. You are good. 
and all you do is good. And we thank you for the year ahead. God, that they would see the fruit. They would always be looking for the fruit of what you're doing over the deacons, over the staff, and over the overseers, that they would see fruit, tangible fruit, each and every day. We love you, Lord, and we thank you. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, it's official. Thank you, guys. <laughs> Jan just told me she's an elder overseer. <laughs> Um, and before we go forward, now that he's not up here to stand awkwardly and stare at me, I didn't want to put him in that terrible position. I just wanted to say, Tab, thank you so much for these years of your uh, friendship and overseeing our church. Uh, yeah, thank you. I mean, he's not going anywhere. He'll be here, and he'll continue to be the man that we know and love. Um, but he has given, honestly, just given so much of himself and his time and been such a tremendous advocate for our team um, and to help us not break down and die. <laughs> uh, it's been a beautiful thing and just a, a, a wonder, wonderful, beautiful friendship. And honestly, man, you know, I hope to be as good a, as a pastor as you are one, one day. That's my aspiration in life. So thank you. May God bless you and your family as you take some much needed and deserved uh, rest. And I'll probably call you when I need you. <laughs> <laughs> Now, um, to end this evening, I want to remind myself and all of you that the leaders of the church have authority, but they are to exercise what we like to describe as servant authority. And I waited to do this part until after they'd been ordained so they couldn't back out. Um, this is actually the paradox taught by Jesus, the king who washed his disciples' feet. For all Christians... That's the truth, and that's our aspiration, that's our leader, that's our, that's our paradigm of what it means to love, and it manifests itself in church leadership in unique ways. The leadership is not here to kind of detach themselves from the comings and goings of the community and call shots from afar. They're not just here to show up on stage and wax eloquent and then collect a paycheck. The leaders of the church serve the church. They don't ask of the church what they themselves are unwilling to give it meaning they're here on the ground, they are in community, they are participating, they are giving. All the stuff that we invite you guys to do, to show up here every week, to be in a Van City community, to give finances, to serve, to give time, we expect all those things of our leaders as well, and they do them. All of Van City's overseers and deacons show up to the Sunday gathering. They participate in their Van City communities. They serve the church. They give finances. They hang around afterward eating snacks. They roll up cords and pack up equipment. They make coffee. They haul kids' supplies up and down the stairs every week. They are not invisible, detached board of CEOs somewhere off in the shadows. They serve the church, and they also exercise authority. Now, here's one of my least favorite verses in the entire New Testament. You ready for this? Have confidence in your leaders and submit to their authority. So far, this is great. It's working out great for me. But then it goes on, because they keep watch over you as those who must give an account great. So no pressure. Do this so that their work will be a joy, not a burden, for that would be of no benefit to you. The leaders of the church do what they do because they have taken spiritual responsibility for the family of God and will have to give an account for the care that they demonstrate for the church. They don't, they're not here to boss anyone around. They're not here for a resume item. They don't call shots and get paid. They're here because they love the church and they want badly to serve it. 
Now, we understand that Jesus loves the church so much that he described it as his bride. The intimacy and affection in that metaphor is staggering. So Paul then pleads, listen, both of you, the church and the leaders, care for one another well. The authority of the church leader is never an invitation to blind obedience. It understands that though your leaders are imperfect, if you belong to the church, and as much as they faithfully call you deeper into the way of Jesus, follow them. Yes, you get to ask questions. Of course they do. And yes, you get to push back. No, we are not above suggestion and not above correction, not above mistakes. But who do we want to be as a family? Do you want to be driven primarily by cynicism or by suspicion? Do you want me to be the kind of person who more and more over time critiques every little thing and always looks for the worst and projects your own trauma and wounding and insecurity into the church and onto its leadership? Do you want to be comfortably sat and situated in your own pride, so sure that you know much better. If only the leaders would seek out and apply your superior wisdom. Or do you want to move forward in faith, loving and honoring the church and its leadership, willing to do and offer your best as they are willing to do and offer theirs? Because the church does have leadership and there are roles and authority and submission, love and honor, spiritual responsibility, but the world is broken. And so is the church, and so are her leaders. So, finally, there's only so much a leader can do, and they will, will disappoint you at some point. Those of you who have been part of Van City for any length of time know this already. A church leader, any church leader, is not responsible for meeting any and every expectation held by every single member of the church as to what a church leader should or shouldn't be. It's probably obvious to those of you who know me, even a little bit, that I don't really meet a lot of the stereotypical criteria for what one expects when they imagine a pastor. Apparently, I've been told many times, you know, a short run into Van City, actually. Year one, I had experienced enough people upset or disappointed by that that I asked a friend of mine, genuinely concerned, like, like Father Karras, am I unfit? Um, and this is someone who had been a pastor, a teacher, an overseer for many years. Uh, did you make a mistake in inviting me into this role? Was I not supposed to do this? Am I unfit? And he took a deep breath and said, you know, you can't be someone else, so do it as you and do the best you can. Now, our team of leaders at Van City is by no means without its flaws. We have made mistakes, and I think by the grace of God, I have witnessed each and every one of us attempt to repent and move forward faithfully in the way of Jesus and to serve this church. And I can honestly say, I believe we're doing the best we can. I've called out other overseers, but more often I have been called out by them and I have witnessed repentance and forgiveness and reconciliation amongst our leaders. I really believe that our overseers and our deacons genuinely love Jesus. They love this church, and they want to serve this church well. And to embrace an uncompromising faithfulness to Jesus that recognizes the cruciality of the church as the only venue for following Jesus, I want us to become a family that subverts all the broken understanding of what it means to be led and to lead other people. That we would be a family led by men and women with no interest in their own egos, no selfish ambition, no cruel domineering, no abuse of power, no blind or call for blind obedience, no pride, but a servant leadership of men and women who love of the church and for all their imperfections, like Jesus, want to give themselves up for the church. 
leaders and people willing to apologize and to repent and forgive, that we would be a family made up of men and women prepared to rid themselves of cynicism and the American idolatry of individualism and are instead ready to follow Jesus and the leaders of the church into deeper intimacy with God. So let's pray and ask the Holy Spirit to lead us into more faithfulness as a church. Thanks for listening to Vance City. You can connect with us and find more teachings and available resources at www.vancity.church. You can support Vance City financially at vancity.church/give.